0: If you have your Bible with you, then please turn to John chapter 14. John's a book in the New Testament. It's one of the four Gospels written by one of the disciples who knew Jesus best, John the Beloved. it was after three years of public ministry that, uh, Jesus gathered his 12 disciples for a final meal. And, uh, Jesus knew that he was just a few short hours away from being arrested and being falsely accused of things he didn't do. And he would be flogged and condemned to death and he would be crucified on a cross. But, uh, This is why Jesus had come, to seek and to save lost people by dying in their place to atone for the sin against God that they had committed. And by God's grace, many of us in here have been saved by Jesus through faith in him who atoned for our sins on the cross. So we're going to continue to read today what Jesus told his disciples at this Last Supper ask God to help us. Dear Lord, we open your word and, and uh, we don't do that flippantly. We believe that this is your word and we need your help today to not only understand it, we're not here to just acquire facts, but we, we need your help, God, to change our hearts. Fill our hearts, spirit, in a powerful way now. Move in this room. We need your help to get a bigger picture of who you are, to understand what you've done and And what you demand from us, God. We ask that you would protect us from evil on our property today and and that you would do great things through your word. We're totally dependent on you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to do something a little different here. Uh, We've preached a lot of sermons here in John chapter 14, and honestly, you could read the whole 13 through 17 chapters. Uh, 13 through 17, in one sitting. And so we're gonna read all of John 14 here to read the whole thing in context. Jesus is sitting in this probably small upper room um, with 11 disciples at this point. Judas has gone to betray him. And the disciples don't like hearing about the fact that Jesus is getting ready to leave them So we're starting verse 1 here, John 14, verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, or would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So we're going to focus on verses 25 to 31 today. And in verse 25, Jesus tells the disciples, these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. So over the three years that he spent ministering with his disciples, Jesus had preached and taught to so many different crowds in so many different places around Palestine, and Jesus had performed many signs and wonders to prove that he was God. He had given the disciples commands for each other, he had given... Uh, the disciples' uh, commands for the church, and he had given commands for how they should advance god 's gospel kingdom to the ends of the earth. so he had laid a lot on them. Jesus had put a lot on the disciples, and now he was going to leave them, and it was their responsibility to take everything that they'd seen and heard in Jesus and to share this accurately with as many people as possible as quickly as possible so that even in 2016 we would get an accurate report of what Jesus said and did. So how in the world were these 11 men going to do that? Jesus tells them in verse 26 but the helper the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the way that the disciples would understand first everything that they'd heard and the way that they would share with the world everything that they had heard Jesus say and seen him do was by the help of the Holy Spirit. That is how they would do this, by the help of the Holy Spirit. After Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus would return to heaven and in his place he would send the Holy Spirit ...to help the disciples and to help all believers. And here Jesus tells the disciples three things about the Holy Spirit. First, he says that the Father would send the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. So, remember this, okay? Because we talk a lot about the Trinity here, especially in this passage... ...that there is only one God in existence. And he manifests himself in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit... And when the Holy Spirit would come to the church in this new unprecedented way, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all involved in this process. The Father sends the Spirit, and the Spirit comes to the church, and the Spirit comes in whose name? Jesus' name. And so that means that the disciples will know that they are experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit because. The Holy Spirit is gonna work in alignment with Jesus' commands and Jesus' will. The Holy Spirit will never give you a message or tell you to do anything that contradicts the Bible. It won't ever, he won't ever tell you something, uh, to do something that contradicts Jesus' word. So if you ever feel a spiritual force or a voice urging you to do something, you can find out real quick whether that's God talking to you or not by opening your Bible, saying, is this what Jesus has already commanded me to do? If so, then this is the Spirit. But if this goes against what God has told me in his word, this isn't from God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all the same God. The says... The Holy Spirit comes Jesus' name. Disciples about the Holy Spirit would teach them life on. To the disciples. It wasn't until Jesus returned to heaven the Holy Spirit came to earth that they would finally understand what Jesus meant by a lot of what he said and did. Because the Holy Spirit would teach them. The Holy Spirit would teach them what it meant that Jesus is the Messiah. The, the Spirit would teach them what it meant that Jesus is on this cross and this is how he's gonna save us? that he paid for our sins on the cross. I thought he was supposed to be a king who comes back with tanks and jets and bombs whole cities and makes his kingdom that way. He comes on a cross. The Spirit would teach him why the resurrection of Jesus matters and why the gospel is good news for all who trust in Jesus. And the, The Spirit taught all of these things to the disciples just like he tells us Today to all who believe in him. And the third thing Jesus tells the disciples about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance everything that Jesus said to them. The Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance everything Jesus said to them. Now keep in mind, when Jesus said this, the New Testament of the Bible did not exist yet. But it was God's plan to have the disciples and their close acquaintances write down much of what they saw Jesus do and much of what they saw him say, heard him say. So, so you need to know this. The New Testament was not written a 100 years after Jesus' death, okay? It wasn't even written in the 2nd century or the 3rd century. So the New Testament was written, you should know this, in the decades immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection in the disciples' lifetimes. So when you hear uh, on CNN or Fox, whatever you watch, about the discovery of a new piece of ancient writing that dates back to the third century and says Jesus was married and had kids, don't believe it, okay? The church at that time said this is bogus, okay? We don't have to figure that out now. The canon was done early, very early, Okay. One of the criteria for a book to even be the canon, meaning the collection of Scripture, of books in Scripture. One of the criteria for a book even to be included in the New Testament is that it had to be written by one of the living disciples, the 11 disciples, or by one of their close acquaintances who ministered with them and who could verify with them everything. And the way that the disciples remembered everything that Jesus said to them was by the Holy Spirit's help. The Holy Spirit taught them and made them remember. And as you read the New Testament, you find that the writers include incredible details in their writings. Like the color of the grass, depending on the season. And as they were traveling, whether or not they were climbing in elevation or descending in elevation at the time, I'd probably remember that. i probably got tired. 20-mile hike. You remember whether you're going up or down. They include whether they were being taught by Jesus inside or outside, depending on the weather. There are many reasons why the writings of the disciples, which we call the New Testament, are historically reliable. And one of the main reasons is because the Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance everything that Jesus said to them. Several of the apostles, even as they were writing the New Testament, attested to this reality. The apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1.21 says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed, breathed. When we read scripture, we're not reading the breath of men. We're reading the breath of God. That men wrote down in their own styles and dialects as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And God the Father sent the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name to help the disciples and the church and, and to teach the disciples and the church the truth of the gospel and to bring to the disciples' remembrance everything that Jesus said to them so that they could share it with the world. Aren't you thankful to have the Bible in our language? I am. Just a fascinating fact I gotta throw out there because I'm interested in this stuff. If you've ever played the telephone game where it starts with one person who says, like, penguins are blue, and then you tap and whisper on another, you know, the person next to you, and they whisper it to the next person, and by the end, you have, like, pizza is green, something weird. Some people have said that the, we can't trust scripture because over 2,000 years, what if that's happened? What if, what if we haven't had the same account that the original disciples gave us? This is, again, one of the evidences that makes the New Testament unlike any other document in history. Because what we have, actually, is over 5,000 copies of copies of copies of the New Testament in papyrus. Some have biodegraded because that's, that's what happened on papyrus. And we have animal skins and vellums that they, cop- that they copied the New Testament on. And what they have found is that in all of those copies through the centuries that people copied them, 99.9% of those documents are identical. It's incredible. And the only difference is that 0.1% is areas of spacing and punctuation. That's incredible. A telephone game doesn't work. It, it normally works at youth group, but it doesn't work with the Bible. It's awesome. That's a miracle. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He wanted you and me to have the same Bible that the apostles wrote. The Bible, which includes the Old Testament books before Jesus came to the world, and it includes the New Testament books after Jesus came to the world, is God's word breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And so when we open this book, may we remember that. Sometimes we take it for granted because we have more copies of the Bible in our country than anybody, right? We have catalogs that you get in the mail. Choose what kind of, there's now, I mean, choose what kind of Bible you want. You know, we got a a catalog this week one translation of the Bible and it's like 40 pages of different Bibles in that translation and praise God for it but may we not open the word without grateful hearts and, and how does this apply to us here? Well, it means don't get discouraged if you have a hard time understanding the Bible. Join the club. Don't, uh, don't get discouraged if you have a hard time remembering Bible verses sometime but instead of giving up, And because of the gospel, which says you're not actually saved by your ability to understand everything in the Bible perfectly, you're not actually saved by the number of Bible verses you have memorized, you're saved by the work of Jesus in your place, then that serves as impetus that, man, I want to know this, God. I want to read the Bible. I want to pray to God. God, would you help me to understand what this means just like you taught the original disciples? Would you help me? God, would you help me to remember when I'm talking to somebody, the scripture that I'm thinking of, would you, Holy Spirit, put the words in my mouth and, and help me to do the work of paying attention to your word and, and, and reading it, God? We need God's help. And we don't have to do this alone. You can read the word with other people and your family and your friends and we need to spur each other on. In verse 27, Jesus shares a great promise that we need The Spirit's help to remember, and we need his help to believe. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So Jesus tells the disciples, and by extension here, his church, peace I leave with you. I don't know how much you know about Jesus, but during his life on earth, he did not have much to call his own. Uh, He didn't come from a prestigious family. He didn't have the most impressive upbringing by any means. His dad, Joseph, was a, a carpenter, and Jesus grew up in a small, relatively unimpressive town called Nazareth. And then when Jesus grew up into a man, even though the whole world was his because he was God... Look at how he lived. He didn't have a high-paying job. He didn't have fancy clothes to wear. And as best as we can tell, he didn't even have a house. He just, he didn't have a whole lot of money. He didn't have a whole lot of property to give to his family, to give to his disciples when he died. But Jesus left to his disciples and to his church something that nobody can earn or buy. Peace from God. And then Jesus gets more specific. He says, my peace I give to you. So why does he call it my peace that he gives to us? What's so unique about this peace that he gives us that he calls it his peace, my peace? Well, this peace that Jesus gives to his church is peace from God, which is true peace. It's a real peace. It's not a fake peace. It's not a, if I dream enough about this being true, then it will be a real peace. Or if I tell myself enough happy thoughts, then maybe I can make this peace a reality. Isn't that interesting? I was thinking, watching this whole Burlington thing this weekend and the news. It's interesting watching the news anchors. You can kind of tell a little bit where they're at in their faith with this whole thing. And Some people will say our prayers are with them and some people will say happy thoughts are with them. Positive, warm energy we send your way. Um, This peace with God isn't a warm, fake energy that we hope is true. This peace that Jesus gives us is peace with God. You see, now think about this. You wouldn't need peace with God if you were already at peace with God. You wouldn't need him to give it to you if you already had it. And that's why Jesus came to tell us that because we've all rebelled against God, who is awesome, we've rebelled in in many different ways. We are not at peace with God. God's not okay with us. Even if we try to convince ourselves that we're good with God. Even if we're banking on, oh, I'm gonna when I die, I'll show up, I'll point to all my good stuff. And God knows all those times I prayed to Him. God wants us to know. Jesus came to say, you need to know you're not good with God. But he still loves you. Jesus loves us so much that he came to earth to tell us that we don't have peace with God and actually we're guilty before God. Do you know this if you're here today? But God loves you. Jesus came to sacrifice his life in our place to become our guilt on our behalf so that whoever accepts his sacrifice through faith can have peace, this peace with God now and forever that starts in this life and goes after this life. The peace of God that Jesus leaves with us is his peace because he's the only one who earned it. He's the only one who earned this peace with God. You and I haven't earned it. Our movie stars, our movies, they haven't earned it. Our our lifestyles haven't earned us peace with God. They can't. Our politicians and humanitarians, our government can't earn us peace with God. Only Jesus can give us true peace because only Jesus has truly died and atoned for sin. That's it. And this is a real peace that Jesus offers us with God. This is Jesus' peace. That's why he says, this is my peace. Not only does Jesus give us peace with God, but also his Holy Spirit gives us the peace of God in our lives. It's not a peace that, there's this, there's this uh, you could call it a positional peace with God, this reality that Jesus has made us in a peaceful relationship with God forever because of what he's done, but there's also maybe this experiential peace, a peace of God in our lives that the Holy Spirit is with us, will never leave us, and he has a way of ministering to us and comforting us and guarding our hearts and our minds in a way that is beyond what we can fully understand, but he is the Holy Spirit of peace who protects us with the Prince of Peace's peace, are you at peace in your life? If we were outside the church, if we were just sitting down for a coffee somewhere, and I asked you that, what, I mean, what would go through your mind? Are you at peace? Have you talked to the Lord lately and asked Him for peace in your life? Are you at peace with God? Have you asked God to forgive you from your sin? Do you believe you're sinful? Have you resolved in your own heart to turn away that you don't want that sin? Because that's what the world offers. I'm done with it. I don't want that anymore. I want Jesus. I want to turn to Jesus. Only him can, well, he can save me and give me peace. Have you trusted in Jesus? Is that what you're trusting in? And have you respond in obedience to Jesus by being baptized? To celebrate your eternal union with him because of what he did to save you. This is a real peace that God offers to you. He says that this world doesn't offer you this peace. Jesus says that he gives this peace, what does he say, not as the world gives So what's the difference between the peace that Jesus offers you and the peace that the world offers you? The world doesn't offer you peace. (laughs) It can't. It is incapable of offering peace. Have you noticed that? It's It's a good thing to pray for. And there will be a day when there is peace, when Jesus returns. In the meantime, there's a lot of songs about peace. There's... A lot of banners about peace, we pray lots of prayers for peace, but any peace that we really do experience in our life that is real, doesn't come from the world, it's from God. The world isn't peaceful, the world is chaotic. Chaos is the opposite of peace, God is not a God of chaos, he's a God of peace. So if you believe, but this, this is hard, I mean, this is where we have to push in a real way, against some of the worldview of this world, which says, I actually don't need God for peace. Because if you believe that this world can offer you peace, if you believe that humanity can really have peace all by itself, if you believe that we humans as a result of the evolutionary process in 2016 are the most sophisticated and intelligent generation of humans that have ever walked on planet earth then how do you explain the shooting in burlington this weekend how do you exp- how do you what do you make of the fact that this is the fourth mass shooting in our state in 9 months we have to get real the world doesn't offer us peace we're not going to find peace in this what this world has to offer At best, the world can offer us happiness. We can shut off the TV and pretend it's not real, that it's not there, but it doesn't change reality. The world can't give you lasting happiness. It can't give you lasting joy that you can take with you after you die. It can give you some help, it can give you some drugs, it can give you spurts of happiness, They can try to make you forget. It can give you activities that make you happy for a little while. It can give you ways, ideas of ways to escape for a little bit. But this world can't give us peace. It can't take away our fears. This world doesn't have the power to promise us that everything's gonna be okay in this life. The world can't make you right with God. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus gives real peace, not a fake peace. Only Jesus offers peace from God, which is peace with God and gives us the peace of God. Jesus offers you this peace because he's the only one who can offer it. That's not why he does it, but he is the only one who offers it. He offers it because he's awesome and loving and gracious. And God alone has earned this peace by putting sin and putting eternal chaos to death on the cross. And with this incredible promise of peace, Jesus finishes verse 27 by saying, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So remember the idea here is that the work of Christ to atone for sin is so finished And the work of the Holy Spirit is so real to rescue you, to recreate you, to redeem your life that you should not allow yourself to be troubled. We should not allow our hearts to be afraid. And this is hard to do at times because troubling thoughts and fears infiltrate our hearts. They infiltrate our bodies. They're one of the main tactics used by the the world and Satan in our own flesh to get us to be in despair. And so Jesus tells us, fight them. Battle those fears, battle those troubling thoughts by setting your mind on the truth of God's word, on the promises of God. Setting your mind on the truth, what's reality? What's reality? The reality is that Jesus' finished work on the cross, which the Father sent him to do, has been applied to me by the Holy Spirit, even when I don't feel like that's happened or is happening. Don't let your hearts be troubled. It's hard We've got to fight the good fight of faith together. We cannot allow ourselves to be constantly afraid. We must cling to the truth of Scripture, which he says here, the Holy Spirit will help us to understand and believe. We need to sink in here so it affects what we believe and affects the way we love God and the way that we love other people. He says, don't be troubled, because guess what? Jesus is greater Jesus is more all-encompassing than all of your fears and problems which try to blind you. Jesus is greater even when your problems are grossly enormous. Jesus is greater. And now verse 28, Jesus reinforces why we should be joyful about this. Why we should be joyful about this peace that he leaves with us. Jesus says, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Jesus says, you know that I'm not gonna leave you as orphans, okay? I'm not gonna forget about you. And we need to hear that too. Jesus isn't gonna leave us as orphans. He says, I'm coming back for you. And if you loved me, if you obeyed my command to believe me, then you would have rejoiced that I am going to heaven because I'm going to God the Father in heaven. I'm going to the Father in heaven where I will have all my glory and where I will intercede for you and where I'm going to sit on the throne until I return. And Jesus says that God the Father uh, is greater than him, not in the sense that the Father is a greater God than Jesus, but in the sense that the Father is the one who has used his fatherly authority to send Jesus to us to be our Savior. And, since Jesus hides us in himself, okay, he, he hides us in himself by the power of the Spirit, what that means for us is that we can now be in the Father's presence again and be his beloved who he loves to be with because we're covered by the righteousness of Christ completely. So in one sense, we're still here on earth physically, and in another sense, we're hidden in Jesus in the presence of God the Father in the heavenly realms. <laughs> it's incredible. This is why this is what it means that we are eternal beings too. We're not just bodies, we're spirits that God made in his own image. And, and Jesus says this should cause us to rejoice because even though we miss Jesus while he is in heaven, our separation from God no longer exists because of Jesus. And so Jesus says, Rejoice, church. This is your reality. This is your peace now because I give it to you. I'm with the Father in glory and the Spirit's with you. And then Jesus says in verse 29, and now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. So before any of this ever happened, Jesus told the disciples that he would die for sin and rise again and return to his throne before uh, returned to them before returning to heaven. So the reason he says that he told them all of this beforehand is so that when they saw him arrested in that garden, when they saw him tried in the middle of the night, when they saw him be beaten and spit upon and whipped and mocked and hung on the cross, and then when they saw him buried, dead, and then when they saw him three days later appear to them in a room that was locked, walking and talking to them, and eating with them, they would believe even more, okay? They would know that he was God. This is legit, okay? He's alive. His promises are true. It's because Jesus died and rose again that we know he is God, that his promises are true, that we have been declared righteous in God's sight. That's, that's where our peace is. It's because Jesus rose again. And God wants you, he says he does this. Who did he do this for? He says, so that you may believe. God wants you to believe because he loves you. He wants what's best for you. He wants you to trust him with your life and your soul. He wants you to know that he is the truth that you have been looking for. And that's why he predicted his resurrection so many times for your sake, that you would believe in him. And he was going to the cross really soon. But before that happened, he had to be betrayed. And so he says in verses 30 to 31, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So the ruler of this world that Jesus is talking about is Satan, And we read in John 13, 27 that Satan had already entered into Judas at the Last Supper. And then Judas left the supper to go gather a mob that would arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. And so Satan, who was working in Judas and through Judas, was coming soon to arrest Jesus. But even this, if you think about that, that's a sick thought. Satan arresting Jesus. But even this horrible, sickening thought that the most filthy, evil, rebellious demon in existence would lay his hands on Jesus, it is not reason for us to be without peace. This is how awesome Jesus is. Satan's attack on Jesus does not take away our peace. And that's because Satan has no claim on Jesus. Okay? First of all, Satan's not God. He's not equal with God. It's not like in the cartoons where you see two equal forces fighting. It's not like that. Satan's down there. God's up here. Okay? He does not have the power that God has, but Jesus is God. Jesus is equal with God the Father. Jesus does have all the power that God the Father has. And second, Satan has no claim on Jesus because Satan can only make prisoners... Out of those who sin. That's why humanity is enslaved to Satan. Because humanity has sinned. But Jesus had no sin. Jesus has no sin. Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb of God without any blemish of sin who came to rescue those who were in bondage to sin. Okay? Satan has absolutely nothing to accuse Jesus of because Jesus has done nothing wrong. Satan has no claim on him. Instead, Jesus says that his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion is not because Satan is in control, but because the Father is in control. So he says, rise, let us go from here, because it is the Father's will for Jesus to die for our sin. And Jesus obeys his Father perfectly, And by obeying the Father perfectly, he shows the world that he truly loves the Father. And obviously that he truly loves us. Last week we talked about how obeying God is a strong evidence that you love God. Well, Jesus obeyed God the Father perfectly, even to the point of going to the cross, which is the perfect evidence that Jesus loved the Father perfectly. And at the end of the day, all persons, all other persons, all other spiritual leaders in world religions fall short of truly knowing and loving the one true God because they have not perfectly obeyed God's commands in Scripture. Only Jesus has. In his life, he did not sin. Only Jesus truly loves the Father. This is why only Jesus can rightly say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Man, what incredible news these words of Jesus are for us. Because Satan has no claim on Jesus, is what Jesus says. So, guess what that means for everybody who's been united to Jesus through faith in him? It means that Satan has no eternal claim on you. Okay? If you're not in Christ, he does. He does have claim on you in this life and after this life. But if you are in Christ, Satan has no eternal claim on you. You will battle against Satan. You will battle against his temptations in this life on earth. He will try to make you as ineffective of a Christian as he possibly can during your life on earth. But if you are in Christ, then you are already the winner of the war because Jesus won the war for you on the cross, okay? And some people might say, but what about my sin? Satan had no claim on Jesus because Jesus didn't sin, but what about me? I'm filthy with sin. I know I fall short of God's standards every day. What about the sins I committed after I was baptized 30 years ago or five years ago? Well Jesus says that if you're in him, don't fear because he paid it all. Amen. When he died for your sin, that included the sin you were born in, it included the sins of your childhood, it included the sins of your teenage years, the sins of your college years, the sins of your adulthood, the sins that you do until the last day on earth. If you trust in Jesus, Satan has no claim on you because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is who you are now in Jesus. You're the righteousness of Christ. That changes the way you look at your job. That changes the way you think about Monday. I'm the righteousness of Christ, I'm saved. I'm never gonna die eternally. And God has a purpose and mission for my life to love him and love the people around me that he puts in my life. How am I going to take these opportunities? Even if they don't like me, even if they say mean things about me, I'm going to love them because I'm good. <laughs> I'm good with God. I'm going to heaven. But I want them to know Jesus. I want them to be part of this too. We are the means The church is the means that God has ordained through the gospel by proclaiming the gospel to the world of calling the church to him. So what this means is that your salvation, your rightness with God, your your peace with God, it doesn't rest on your shoulders. It rests on Jesus' shoulders. And so now you are freed to pursue a life without sin for the first time in your whole life. You can Pursue the things of God. You can enjoy friendship with God and know that this isn't make-believe, this is real. Because Jesus rose again, and I'm united to him. And yeah, you'll you'll still sin in this life, but the helper that God sent to us, this Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, will convict you in Jesus' name, will help you to see that Whatever your habits and actions are may not be in alignment with God's word. The Holy Spirit will spur you on to love and to do good deeds and to, rem- to remember the gospel that you're saved by God's grace through faith, not by your works. And this hope that we have in Christ and in our present position before God motivates us to keep knowing this God and to read his word and we want to love him by obeying him we want to claim these promises of scripture as our own because Jesus bought them for us on the cross. And so I want to be transformed more into Jesus' likeness every day by the power of the spirit, by going to the word which sanctifies me. That's what Jesus says in John 17. The word sanctifies you, it purifies you, it makes you more like God by the power of the spirit. So pursue God. <laughs> pursue God. Enjoy Peace with God that Jesus leaves with us, that he's left with us, that is ours in him because Jesus paid it all for you because he loves you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this passage which you've given, which you originally spoke to the 11 disciples, but uh, the promises of which are ours now, God, in you. we don't live in a peaceful world we live in a chaotic world and uh, we thank you Lord that because your work is finished your promises are true your spirit is with us that even when our world is shaken you don't shake your promises don't shake the reality of our salvation in you our friendship with you doesn't crack it's totally real. It's totally there all the time. You're going to see us through by the power of your spirit until the day that we meet you face to face. Holy Spirit, please give us power to battle the way you want us to battle against the lies that we are so easily tempted to leave, to believe, the scary thoughts that fill our minds, the worries. Help us to battle against the the uh, impulses of our flesh which, uh, which urge us to treat other people in a way that we treated them before we knew you and your love and that urge us to treat you the way that we treated you before we knew you and our love. Please just renew our hearts for you, God. Help us to, to saturate this, this peace, to, to savor it, God, to, uh, to be so filled with this knowledge of this joy, God, that we would just be overflowing in love with one another, that our church might be an expression of your peace, that we would treat one another not in a way that we used to, according to the ways of this world, but that we would be one conversation, one conflict at a time, God, working out the wondrous blessings of of reconciliation in Christ, which can be expressed between us now. God, give us peace that we uh, that this would drive into our hearts, that, that it would stay in our minds. We need your help, God. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.